Well, welcome again. Um, my name is Marcus. I just say that if you're here with us for the first time. Um, I've had the privilege for the last four weeks just to preach the Word of God here. But our main pastor, our main preacher, Pastor James Shin, he's uh, been away on sabbatical. And we were able to see him this week and fellowship with him. He, I know he's very anxious just to come back and preach God's Word here. And I'm sure that you're anxious as well to, to have him back and to hear God's Word unfolded. Let's continue to be in prayer just for their family, that God would use their final um, three or four weeks just to refresh them and encourage them as they prepare. Actually, I think three weeks. Uh, Elder Bob will be preaching next week, and the week after that, uh, Pastor Dan, and then I believe uh, James will be back here. So we look forward to that. Um, just, a, just a brief note as we continue on. Um, as we look at our final message today on the Cross Center Church, um, I had a list of resources, about five or six books and some sermons that would continue to encourage you and direct your hearts that way. Um, we'll email those out later to you and you can just look through those things and I would encourage you to invest in some of those books and continue to listen to some of those sermons. Uh, in fact, as we continue on and as we look this morning at Matthew 27, I think that uh, for me it was difficult to prepare this message in a couple ways. And one of those ways was simply the fact that Pastor James has, has preached this text before. Um, in fact, I'll just say for me personally that his sermon on Matthew 27 verses 45 through 54 is the most powerful sermon I've ever heard him preach. Uh, I've listened to it numerous times. I've heard him preach it numerous times. And so, as I prepared this text many times, I thought of putting it on the shelf and not trying to go there. So, you can listen to his sermon later, not to compare, but just to be encouraged and uh, just to see how God used that message. But I think even more difficult was just the fact that this is maybe the most you know, holy ground in all of Scripture, that all four Gospels... Bring the cross to the center. Right? There are different things that are left out in each of the Gospels. There are certain things that are in, you know, all three synoptics, and in the synoptics, but not in John. But in all four Gospels, God unfolds to us the cross, the crucifixion. And He tells us simply by that fact that this is a profound time, this is a profound event. And so it's proven difficult to mine the full depths and all the the gravity this year, but nonetheless, we enter this morning to study, to be reminded of the death of our Lord, the cross of Christ, this event which is the very center of our church. As we begin, I want to begin with some background, Matthew chapter 27, in verse 27, just briefly run through 27 through uh, 44, just to give us some context. Matthew's account can be simplified to point us to three main aspects of the crucifixion. He points out to us the physical pain, the emotional pain, and the spiritual pain of our Lord as He goes to the cross and as He suffers on the cross. Verses 27 through 35a focus first on the physical pain. Here in these verses, we must remember that Jesus is led out to Golgotha having, having already been tortured. 
The blood of Jesus did not begin to flow at Calvary when the nails pierced his hands and feet. The text tells us that the blood of Christ had been flowing for some time now. If we would have seen him carrying his cross up that road to Calvary, the first thing that would have shocked us would have, would have been to see his head and to see his face. Blood flowed readily down his face and down the back of his neck because of the, the puncture wounds in his skull, because of the crown of thorns that had been pressed into his head. Most likely his, his hair would have been saturated with blood. It would have been matted around his face and, and around his neck as this blood was saturating his, his head and his face, running into his eyes. We know as well that his, his face itself had been pulverized, that he was so badly beaten by the centurions and by the soldiers that he is now unrecognizable. Isaiah 52.14 says, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. Professor E.J. Young, remarking on this text, he says, This does not mean that he appears to be more disfigured than any man, but that his disfigurement was so great that he no longer appeared as a man. If we would have seen him walk up the road carrying the cross, we would have noticed his head and his face first. But after he passed by carrying the cross beam, we would have watched him and we would have next noticed his back. His back by this time has been completely shredded. The skin of his back was, was not neatly filleted open as with a scalpel, but it was, it was shredded open like a cheese grater. It had been just pulverized through the whipping and through the beating. It is possible that even his internal organs would have been visible. The blood at this time would have, would have just been flowing down his back, running down his legs, and we would have seen dried and crusted blood upon his legs, and we would have seen fresh blood flowing down into the other blood. We would have seen it go all the way down to his feet. We would have watched him walking as he was carrying the cross. We would have seen his feet covered in dust as it clung to the blood that covered his feet. And as he carried the weight of the cross, he fell down. He most likely was unable to carry this, which is why verse 32 tells us that the Romans procured a man, Simon of Cyrene, to pick up the cross and to carry it for our Lord up to Golgotha. In verses 33 and 34, we read that when Jesus arrived at Golgotha, the soldiers gave him strong wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. A lot of commentators tell us that this gall was mixed with this wine for the purpose of numbing the pain. That it was somewhat an act of mercy. That he could drink this and, and, and have his pain somewhat numbed. But we didn't understand that the whole purpose of the cross was scientific. It was designed to produce maximum pain. It was efficient to keep the, the victim alive as long as he could possibly remain alive and to produce in him the maximum amount of pain. So for the soldiers to, to offer him a drink intended to ease his pain doesn't seem doesn't make sense. It seems that the real purpose of the gall was probably not to ease the pain, but to sedate the victim 
and to keep him from thrashing about so as to make it easier on the centurions to impale his limbs. Therefore, our Lord's refusal of the cup boldly pronounces that sedation and restraint are unnecessary. His life is not being taken from him, but he is willfully laying it down on his own initiative. Luke 23:34 tells us that instead of thrashing violently as the soldiers are impaling him, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Matthew then moves us from the physical pain to the emotional pain, the emotional suffering and the scorn of our Lord. Verses 35b through verses 44. In these verses we see the height of atheism. The very God of the universe is not only crucified, but He is mocked as He hangs upon the tree and pays for the sin of the world. But more than the emotional suffering, we need to see the sovereign plan of God. If we did a full study of these verses, we would see the incredible precision by which this event is unfolded. We see God is the one who is sovereign, and Christ is the one who, with full authority, carries out His Father's sovereign plan. This brief section is packed with fulfillment of prophecy as Christ is punished on the cross. The soldiers divide His garments and cast lots, all the while fulfilling the Scriptures. The Pharisees, with their own mockery, unwittingly quote Scripture and fulfill the Word of God. With their own mockery, they, they call out to Him, You saved others, save yourself. Come, now, come down now from the cross and we'll believe in you. One writer said, They said that they would believe He was the Son of God had He come down from the cross. We believe He was the Son of God because He stayed up. But it was verses 45 through 54 that we focused on this morning. Here Matthew unfolds the spiritual suffering of our Lord. It's here that we mind the depths of the suffering of Christ. But we must be mindful this morning as we study this text. We cannot equate suffering with weakness. Because what we're going to see here is that it was not weakness, but the awesome power of Christ that kept Him on the cross. We will see here the purpose and power of Christ as He is on this cross. We have no points this morning, no outline, so to speak. We just simply walk through the text. We begin in verse 45, where Matthew tells us, Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Mark 15.25 tells us that Christ was crucified around nine in the morning. Here Matthew tells us that the darkness did not come until the sixth hour, which was noon. Which means that at this point, Jesus had been hanging on the cross for three hours. As darkness settles in at the third hour, the fourth hour of His crucifixion. Never has such a darkness ever been experienced on this earth. The hour is high noon. The sun, by all means, is still high in the sky. Even if it was cloudy, it's, it's noon. The sun is visible. Light is bright. This is not a, 
supernatural intervention with nature in which God blots out the sun with thick clouds or causes the earth to spin quickly and the sun to set. This is an unexplainable supernatural effect as the wrath of God descends upon the earth. The reason for this darkness seems simple. At this hour, the most monstrous murder of all time is taking place. Can any sin be committed that is greater than the murder of the Son of God? What other event in history can be considered as lawless and treacherous as this day? This darkness then was the visible indication of God's wrath against the sins of the world. This darkness was the visible indignation of God's wrath against sinners. And yet, what is profound about this wrath, what is profound about this darkness, is that though it was His wrath against sinners, it was not poured out upon them. God was pouring out His wrath upon His murdered Son, instead of pouring His wrath out upon His Son's murderers. The miracle here is not simply the darkness. It is what the darkness represents. This darkness reveals a cataclysmic event that cannot be seen or heard by the eyes and ears of men. At this moment, our sins are placed upon Christ. The sins that we have committed are placed upon Jesus Christ. And He is bearing our sins in His body on the cross. He has denied the cup of wine and gall, but He takes the full cup of the furious wrath of God. All of our odious sins are placed upon this spotless Lamb of God at the cross. God looks upon His Son as if He were looking at us. Now, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. The confidence of this answer is in verse 46. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? The darkness now has been on the earth for three hours as Christ has been on the cross for six. The words loud voice here are the Greek words phone megala, or to put it the other way, megale phone, megaphone. That is, it was a loud cry, it was a piercing cry. Now, to us who have never seen a crucifixion, this does not seem very significant or very phenomenal. But to those at the scene, this was miraculous. Crying out with a loud voice after you have been hanging on the cross for six hours is impossible. Crucifixion does many things to you, but one of its most torturous purposes is that it suffocates you. It gives you minimal air and slowly asphyxiates you. Crucifixion, it suffocates you because your body is stretched out, placing all of your weight upon your impaled limbs. And in order to breathe, the, the victim must pull up or on his limbs or push up on his feet in order to take in fresh air. But soon the victim's muscles begin to cramp and it disables him from pushing up on his feet or taking in air. And even, even doctors tell us that once you were able to, to bring in air, you had to go through the torturous process again of trying to exhale. Victims on the cross, they fight to breathe. 
But here the Holy Scriptures tell us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And what we learn here is that the cross is not killing him. Even after the beatings, the scourging, the crown of thorns, the nail wounds, and hanging in agony for several hours, his life is not slipping away. The king is in absolute control over all as he hangs upon the cross, enduring the righteous indignation of God. And it is not only that he, he cried out, it is the weight of what he cries. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Whether those around him knew why it was dark, we don't know. But Christ knew why it was dark. He knew why the light of the sun stood paralyzed. Christ was not crying out in surprise that God forsook him. Christ was not dying upon the cross, confused, wondering what had gone wrong. He is crying out in the anguish of what has taken place. He experiences the full physical, emotional, and spiritual pain of the cross as God's wrath bears down upon him. We, we learned in our, our first sermon three weeks ago that Christ had to become a man. He had to become a man for only as a man can, can, can he die. He had to be God for only is God perfect and holy. But as a man only can this holy man, this perfect man die. And we learn here that as just man hung upon the cross, in his full humanity he experiences hell. He experiences the eternal separation of God from man. The word forsaken means to abandon, to desert, to leave behind, to leave alone. Theologians call this, this theology here uh, the dereliction. Dereliction, it means an intentional abandonment a conscious neglect, a necessary rejection. And that is what this darkness signifies. And that is what Christ experiences on the cross. The purposeful neglect of God as He turns away from the Son. Christ cried, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And so the Father answers by pouring out His wrath upon His own Son. We cannot fully grasp what this dereliction means. It cannot mean that Christ ceased to be God or that He ceased to be the Son of God. But as man, He must have experienced the separation that we would have known in hell. It was being the perfect and holy Son of God that allowed Him to be our blameless substitute. It was being a man that allowed Him to experience in that moment the eternal separation that we deserved at the cross. In this state of separation, we must be mindful that the only time here when Christ does not refer to God as His Father, He cries out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the Chosen One bring many sons to glory. We must be mindful though that as the Father turns His face away and as Christ calls Him my God, He still in faith clings with the possessive my God. 
We understand here the power of Christ that He does not abandon His hope in God. He does not abandon the promises of God to Him. Verses 47 through 49, Matthew says, And some of those who are standing here, when they heard it, they began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and, taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. The cry of the dereliction was wrongly interpreted by some of those, probably Jews who mistook the call of Elijah for the call of Yahweh. The Aramaic words would have sounded similar. But note the two responses to this cry. One of the men seems to actually be moved by what Christ yells. But the others stand fast to see if anything miraculous will happen. Notice that this man who helped, he didn't just slowly walk. It says that he ran. He ran in order to help Jesus. This seems to be the singular compassionate act of this whole affair. We must be mindful that compassion towards Christ not enough. Jesus told us earlier on the way to Golgotha we see in Luke, in Luke 23 as he's carrying the cross, that there's a group of women standing upon the road and they're weeping for Jesus. They're weeping for him as he's going to the cross. And he, he stops and he says to them, women, do not weep for me, weep for yourselves. Weep for yourselves for the, the day of God's wrath, the day of God's judgment is near. We understand he's telling them, it's not enough to, to weep over my cross, it's not enough to feel pity as you watch me dying. You need to understand that it's not, I don't need your pity, you need mine. I go to the cross in compassion for you. There are many who are moved. There are many. There are thousands who are moved with compassion. This is the phenomena of Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, where droves of men and women went out to watch the bloody crucifixion. Many walked out from the theaters, claimed to have been changed and radically transformed as they, they watched the crucifixion, as they were filled with pity and compassion as they watched the, the, the crushing of Christ on the cross. But this man's response here tells us that it's not enough to pity Christ. Christ does not need our pity. This man wanted to help Jesus but did not realize that Jesus was helping him. This man showed compassion for Christ yet did not understand that Christ was on the cross out of compassion for him. Christ does not want our pity. He wants our repentance. He wants our obedience. He wants brokenness that will come to Him, that will bow the knee and honor Him as Lord and Savior. And this is what makes verse 50 so profound. The instrument intended to show Jesus Christ in all of His weakness becomes the means to show His greatest power. Few other verses show the sovereign power of Christ as verse 50 does. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. We have before us here the final breath, the last heartbeat of Jesus. 
for the Pharisees watching, all this must have brought about some sense of success over their three-year pursuit to put Jesus to death. And Satan himself must have been rejoicing. If it's possible for there to be any happiness in hell, this must have been the singular time. The death of Jesus seems to be the accomplishment of the most criminal act of mankind and the highest display of the power of Satan. But this text tells us that nothing is further from that truth. Nothing could be further than that. Let me remind you how many attempts were made on Jesus' life. The first attempt to kill Jesus was back in Matthew 2.16 when Herod had all the male babies in Bethlehem slaughtered in an attempt to exterminate the Messiah. This failed. A second attempt is recorded in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus had offended the Jews of Nazareth, telling them that the Jews reject God, but the Gentiles receive Him. And enraged, they drove Jesus up to the top of a cliff with the intention to throw Him off and dash His body on the rocks. The text tells that he, He miraculously just slipped through their midst. John 5.18 tells us that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. The leaders of the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus because he was making himself out to be equal with God. John 7.25 tells us that it was so well known that many Jews wanted Jesus dead, they were saying, is this not the man who they are seeking to kill? In John 10.31, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And as soon as he said this, the Jews, they picked up stones to bash his brains out. And yet, not a single stone was cast. It was in the midst of this attempt upon his life that Christ declared to them in John 10.18, I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. This prophecy, this authority of Christ over His own life and over His own death is fulfilled here at the cross in verse 50. John 19 verse 30 tells us that right before He said said this, right before this happened, Christ declared... It is finished. It is finished. He does not mean that his enemies had won or that death had conquered him. He means that he has paid the eternal debt of sinners by satisfying the full wrath of God. Matthew tells us that Jesus cried out with a loud voice. But Luke tells us what he said. Luke 23.40 records Christ's words, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, we see that this was not simply a whimpering. But he cried out with a loud voice. This is the shout of a sovereign Savior, which he yielded up his spirit, these words. The verb tense in the Greek of the word yield is is extremely specific. It means that Christ did this himself. It means that his life was not taken from him. Now, we need to understand, I don't mean to be derogatory, but you can take your own life. There are many means to take your own life. You can overdose on drugs. 
You can jump off a bridge. There are all sorts of means by which people commit suicide, and they take up their own life. But when you are on the cross, you cannot give up your own life. Again, the very purpose of the cross was to keep you alive as long as physically possible. When you are on the cross, you want to die. At this point, after being on the cross for some six hours, if you can say anything, you are begging someone to put you out of your misery. You are pleading with someone to take your life and to end your suffering. In fact, history tells us that victims on the cross usually stayed there for three days. You could last on the cross for three days. In fact, the, the, the two robbers that were crucified, one on his right and one on his left, we read in Luke that the, the soldiers came and they broke the legs of these robbers. Why? Because a Passover was coming and the Jews didn't want these crucified men to defile the Passover. And so in, in order to, to kill these men, in order for the cross to kill them, they broke their legs to disable them from being able to push up and breathe in anymore. So it sped up their death. But we learn here in verse 50 that after six hours, after only six hours on the cross, Jesus died. The soldiers didn't break his legs. No one put him out of his misery. He wasn't whimpering and pleading with someone to end it all. But in a loud cry, he pronounces that his cross is done and he wills his life away. He laid down his life on his own initiative as the final act of his sovereign power and the mightiest act of his sovereign grace. It is at this point that we must also note something important. Since we know that the darkness only lasted for the final three hours of the cross, we know that it is at this point then that the darkness fades away and the light begins to shine again. The darkness had descended upon this earth because of wrath, but the light begins to shine again, signaling the dawn of redemption. We must not only see the miracle in the darkness, but see the miracle in the light. God causes His saving grace to shine upon sinners, and it is this gracious light, it is this gracious light of the cross that has shined into our darkened sin-stained souls and brought light and life to us. And it is as Christ gives up His life, it is as this light begins to shine. We read verses 51 and 53. Through 53. Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after His resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. tearing of this veil is a profound sign. This veil was not a, a cheap Ikea curtain, right, something you pick up at Target. It was hand-woven with thick braided fabric. Its thickness is said to have been the, the, the span of a palm, palm of one's hand. It was 30 feet wide and 60 feet high. This was a massive curtain. 
before the glory of God departed from Israel as recorded in the book of Ezekiel. The purpose of this veil had been to separate the special Shekinah presence, the Holy of Holies, from all the people and the regular priests who ministered in the temple. You're familiar that only the high priest was able to enter the Holy of Holies. And this special entrance was permitted only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and only after the priest had made sacrifice for himself and, and for the people, for his own sins. You know as well the, the history of how uh, the, they would tie the rope around this, this man's ankles, around the high priest's ankles as he entered into the Holy of Holies in case he had not dealt with his sins appropriately. And as he entered into there with, with sin still upon him in his heart, God would have struck him down. And the only way for his body to be removed would have been to pull on the rope and drag that dead corpse out of there. So at, at this time in history, before Ezekiel, the, the curtain was a, a physical barrier. It was a literal barrier between people and God. But as the glory, the Shekinah glory of God departed from the temple in Ezekiel, this curtain became symbolic. It reminded the people that no one could enter into the presence of God. It reminded the people that there was no admittance, that no works, that no prayers, that nothing could be offered up that nothing could be done to reconcile the breach between sinful men and holy God. But at this moment when Christ breathes His last and gives up His Spirit, the temple veil was torn. Matthew says specifically that it was torn from the top to the bottom. The tear began 60 feet up in the air, this massive curtain. 60 feet in the air and this tear began and it ripped all the way down through the very bottom of this curtain. This is to vividly declare that the separation between God and men was not mended by the works of God, but solely by the works of men, but solely by the grace of God. Yet even more profound is that the veil that was torn in Herod's earthly temple was merely representative. This earthly veil that was torn was merely representative. It signified that the heavenly curtain of God was torn in two. God ripped the earthly veil to show that He had ripped the heavenly veil. Hebrews 10, 19-20 tells us this. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. So as Christ is crushed, he is, he is torn, the Bible says. His body is torn. And as His body is torn, that physical curtain was torn to symbolize that we can now enter before the throne of grace. We can now enter before the holy God of the universe to fellowship with Him, to commune with Him, to pray to Him, to plead before Him. Sin was far more effective in keeping us separated from God than any curtain. But the turn of Christ enabled our entrance to the throne of grace. Matthew tells us that more miracles took place at this point. There was an earthquake that rocked Jerusalem. 
rocks, that is, boulders, were split open. We understand that this was, this was not a little tremor. What's miraculous is that boulders are shattered. They are split open. And yet, buildings and everything stands. Nothing collapses. Nothing is destroyed. And even more incredible, it says that many came to life. That the, that the bodies of many saints were resurrected. We can imagine, we can understand certainly some of these people had died probably recently. But many of these saints had been dead and buried for years. Their flesh had long ago decayed. They were just a mere skeleton. And yet here, we see the power of the resurrection. The power of the cross. As God raises up men from death to life. But perhaps most profound is that the removal of the separation between God and man was immediately experienced, as verse 54 tells us. Now the centurion, those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, it's important for us to remember that crucifixion was a, it was an art, it was a science. It had been perfected by the Romans. A simple soldier would not have been put in charge of a crucifixion, but a centurion would have been, an officer, an officer like this man here. At this point in history, the Romans had crucified some 30,000 Jews. 30,000 Jews have been crucified. This was nothing new. This centurion himself had probably seen countless crucifixions. He had heard the cries and screams of countless victims. He had heard their crying so loud that he no longer heard anything. He no longer felt anything when he did this to people. It would be safe to say that few people had as calloused a heart as this man. He was dead to pain and suffering. His conscience was seared and deformed. This centurion had most likely been a part of the beating and the mockery of Jesus. He knew how the Jews had forced Pilate to hand him over to crucifixion. He knew Jesus claimed to be king of Israel and the son of God. When they put the purple robe on him, they, they, knew, they knew that he claimed to be king. He knew, likewise, that this man was innocent. But this centurion was used to crucifying innocent men. Perhaps it was even his purple robe that they had placed upon Jesus. It was, it was he who was directing his soldiers how to handle the body of Christ. It was he who was commanding his soldiers to pierce the hands and feet of Jesus. It was he who watched on as they impaled this man on the cross. And he watched Jesus. And as he watched Jesus on that cross, at the beginning, he thought and felt nothing. He had seen this so many times. But as the hours went by, this, this centurion, he saw a crucifixion that he had never seen before. He watched things take place that he had never seen of nor heard of in all of his life. He saw the supernatural darkness while the sun was high in the sky. He heard the impossible loud yell of a crucified victim. He felt the earthquake and saw the boulder split. 
And when the veil of the temple, or the veil of Christ's flesh was torn, and when the entrance into the most holy place and the presence of God was made, this soldier stopped laughing and stopped mocking, and he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Luke 23:47 tells us that the words of this centurion were not a, a heartless fact. It says that he began to praise, he began praising God. The verb praise, it's in the tense of the verb tells us that it wasn't just simply a singular praise, but he, he praised God and he kept on praising. This was not a simple response. It was the result of the penetrating work of the cross. Here is the power and the mercy of Christ. Merciful enough to forgive the very man who tortured and crucified him. Powerful enough to awaken this man's soul and bring him to repentance and faith in Christ. As Christ died on the cross, he died for this centurion. Calvary's greatest significance to us is that of substitutionary atonement. John Stodd, his book, The Cross of Christ, writes, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. That's what takes place on the cross. It is as if we are there on the cross. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. He died on the cross in our stead. He died on the cross as our substitute. The cross will always pronounce that either we paid for our sins or Christ paid. We have put our faith in Christ who bore our sins in His body on the cross as our substitute. Now, I want to make just one final note. This is all conjecture. This is conjecture. The Bible says nothing about this. But it is possible that no one understood substitution but the way Barabbas did. You remember Barabbas? The Gospels tell us that three men were crucified that day. Christ in the middle, with one robber on his left and one on his right. And that middle cross where Jesus hung, that is where Barabbas was supposed to hang. Here was this murderer, this insurrectionist, who that very day was supposed to, to be crucified. Now I imagine that after he was released, he was scratching his head. And as he heard about all that was going on, and as he heard that he had been released, and that Christ was going to the cross instead of him, that perhaps he went to the very cross himself to see this man and to see what took place. He must have looked on while, while Jesus was hanging there. He must have shuddered as he heard the cries of the other two robbers. He would have been able to understand better than any of us the words, In my place, condemned he stood. 
His knees must have buckled and his heart must have nearly stopped as he looked upon that horrid sight and thought, I am standing where Jesus should have stood and Jesus is hanging where I should have hung. No one understood substitution like Barabbas. Saints, what we must understand is that each one of you is Barabbas. Each one of you is a traitor, a rebel, and a thief. Each one of us was on death row awaiting crucifixion. But to your astonishment, there was the cry for your release. There was the demanding of your release. Not the shouting of Jews, not the screams of the Pharisees, but the cry of the Father proclaiming that you should be set free from death, that another should die in your stead. The Father pronounces that you should go free, but that His Son must die. So saints, my encouragement to you this morning is very simple. When your heart grows cold, you no longer feel in your your heart grows callous like the centurions. The cross no longer moves you. Remember your name. Utter your name. Utter the word Barabbas. And be reminded that like him, it was not luck that brought your freedom. It was not chance that you were set free and Christ killed. But that it was the sovereign grace of God. Never forget that Barabbas was a notorious prisoner. And you are a notorious sinner. That Barabbas deserved to be punished for his crimes, but you deserve to be punished for your sins. Barabbas was condemned to die on the cross. You were condemned to die in hell. Barabbas was called to be set free by the people. You were called to be set free by God. Barabbas was unjustly set free through blackmail. You were justly pardoned through the ransom of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you are here today and you have not repented and believed in the Son of God, Sunday after Sunday we say the same thing to you. Today is the day. What heart could be harder than the centurions? What sinner could be more vile than the very man who without remorse put to death the Son of God? What man was more vile and dead in transgressions and sins than this man? And yet the gospel tells us that the power of the gospel crushed his heart and heart and set him free from the law of sin and death. There is not a single man or woman in this room who can ever say, my sins are greater than the grace of God. There is not a man or woman in this room who can say, God can't save me. I'm too vile. I'm too wretched. I'm too filthy. This man's life proclaims to you that you too can be saved. That you too ought to cry out with a loud voice, Surely this was the Son of God. Surely it was my sins that put him to death. It was my sins that held him there. But this did not just bring compassion or pity, but repentance and faith. And belief. Turn to the sovereign Savior. 
Confess your sins to the Lamb of God and allow Him to take away your sins. For us as a church, we simply remember that just as the cross was in the center on that hill, so it must be the center of our church. When we take off our focus of the cross, the only other object is the world. The world is centrifugal. It it blows the church apart. But the cross is centripetal. It, It draws the church together. It unites the church. This is why we have looked at the centrality of the cross in the church for the last four weeks. Nothing will draw us together as the cross of Christ. Nothing is our focus like the cross of Christ, like the gospel, as Dan said. Elder Bob said two weeks ago, a church that is not cross-centered is no church at all. May we continue to remain steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord as we gaze upon our Lord, as we remind ourselves and each other of the power of the cross. May it never be that we would boast in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ to which the world has been crucified to us and all of us to the world. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you again and acknowledge that it is not us who make the cross the center, but you have made the cross the center. That we need not beat ourselves up. That we need not labor to make the cross the center. That you have done it for us. The cross, as Jesus is exalted there, draws us to him. Our arms and and praises are too weak to lift up your Son to the heights that He deserves. But you have exalted Him to the highest place. Not only as Lord of the universe, but as the sovereign Savior of the world. Thank you, God, for exalting your Son. Thank you for drawing us to behold the incredible glory of Christ the crucified. And Lord, it is our endeavor to you this morning. It is our commitment to you that we will continue to worship your son we will continue to exalt Jesus Christ and that as he is lifted up he will draw all men to himself we thank you for this profound substitution we thank you for this profound work we will forever be praising you and rejoicing you heaven will be an eternal day of thanksgiving which we offer up to you with tears of joy shouts of gratitude you are great and merciful exalted above all the earth great is the Lord and greatly to be praised your greatness is unsearchable we thank you again O Lord for uniting us in spirit making us intent on one purpose through the gospel we thank you O Lord this morning again in your name we pray